Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that probes deeply into the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including car sales for September 2021. Overall good, people movers booming. There's a new Toyota Land Cruiser, an all-new Kia Sorento plug-in hybrid. The Hyundai Kona Electric has reduced prices. Then there's an all-new Ram 3500 pickup. And in our interviews, we get a rundown on what to look out for if you're getting a dash cam. The Hyundai Ioniq 5 is about to hit the market. We get their product manager to tell us why it is such an important car. And in quirky news, Brian Smith and I look at buses that travel down train tracks in Australia. That was not that long ago. There's always more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. Time to start the program. Let's go with the news. VFAX car sales figures in Australia for September 2021 show over 83,000 cars were sold, representing a solid 21% growth compared to the poor results in 2020. After a bit of a slow start, the year-to-date figure is now 26% higher than 2020 and nearly back to the 2019 numbers. These results are promising given the impact of lockdowns and supply issues arising from the global microprocessor shortage. A significant comeback in percentage terms has been in the people mover class, where sales for the month are over 66% higher. The standout leader is still the Kia Carnival, which has increased its market share in this class to 60%. The Volkswagen Multivan has bounced back based on a new model and available supply to a distant third place, but the new futuristic Hyundai Staria has yet to get up ahead of steam. Toyota has launched an all-new version of their largest SUV, the Land Cruiser. The upgrades on the Land Cruiser 300 include a new 3.3-litre V6 twin-turbo six-cylinder diesel engine matched to a 10-speed automatic gearbox. With a power output of 221 kilowatts and 700 newton metres, this is an increase over the V8 it replaces but it achieves a 6.3% better fuel economy, which is rated at 8.9 litres per hundred. There are two new variants, the Luxury Sahara ZX and the off-road focused GS Sport, joining the GX, GXL, VX and Sahara range. While the basic shape is the same across all the variants, the front treatments have made for a clear distinction in different specification levels. Prices, excluding on-road costs, Start with the GX model at $90,000, stepping up to the top of the range Sahara ZX at nearly $139,000. Kia has taken another step in the electrification of its fleet with the launch of the new Sorento plug-in hybrid model. This is one version of the fourth generation of the Sorento large SUV, which has been designed from the outset to accommodate electrified powertrains. The Sorento PHEV has a relatively modest 1.6-litre turbocharged petrol engine, added to which is a transmission-mounted electric motor with a total output of 195 kilowatts and 350 newton-metres of torque. 
The efficiency of this vehicle is that it can, with a full charge, travel 68 kilometres on battery power alone, which suits many urban-based vehicles. On long trips, you can rely on the petrol engine alone. The plug-in powertrain is offered only on the GT line spec at $79,330 plus on-road costs, which is over $18,000 more than the petrol V6 and $15,000 more than the diesel version. The first question usually asked about an all-electric vehicle is how long is the range? A better question would be how are you going to use the vehicle? Every car comes with some compromises. A small car, while typically cheaper to own, has less room for passengers and luggage. A large car might perform better but is harder to park and is usually more expensive. By reducing the size of the battery, Hyundai has now released a cheaper model of its electric version of its Kona small SUV. The compromise is that its range is 305 kilometres, still better than many other popular models. And the average car in Australia covers only 270 kilometres a week, so the Kona could suit many situations on one weekly charge. It's still not a low-priced vehicle, with the base model Elite at $54,500 plus on roads. You can still get an extended range model for an extra $6,000. Ram trucks offer Australian customers the opportunity to have a big American pickup. And they've now launched an all-new version of their biggest truck, the 3500. At over 6 metres in length, weighing 3.6 tonnes, it is powered by a 6.7 litre inline six-cylinder Cummings turbo diesel with an almighty 1,152 newton metres of torque. They say it can tow up to 8 tonnes on the proviso that it is fitted with an appropriate tow hitch and air brakes to suit the vehicle and trailer. It's rated to carry a payload of over 1,700 kilograms. The cargo tub length is 1.93 metres, 6 foot 4 in the old measure. The 117-litre fuel tank will cost you $180 to fill. It has a 6-speed automatic and 4-wheel drive. The new Ram 3500 starts at $163,000 plus on roads for the Laramie Crew Cab model. Hyundai has shown release photos of their new Ionic 5 electric vehicle. It's not yet on the Australian market, but it will be here soon. It is distinctive and very different style. It has some features like fast charging, large power, pretty good range, and a high price compared to non-electric vehicles. But is it a mild progression or a significant step in electric vehicle development? Chris Salterpedis is the product manager for Hyundai Australia. G'day, Chris. G'day, David. How are you going? Very well, thank you. What was your role in terms of uh, bringing this car to Australia? Well, that's a good question, mate. I mean, uh, working in product planning, we get to see future products, you know, two to five years out. So from an initial concept or design stage where pre-COVID, we used to travel to HQ back in Seoul. Um, we'd go to our R&D centre and give some input into the design. Um, all the way up to selecting the model lineup for Australia. Uh, obviously, I guess, you know, researching the market and looking at what the trends are, what people are after in a vehicle, um, how it suits their lifestyle, and ultimately down to how we package that and also price that for our market. 
Do you remember your first reaction on seeing it? It must have been, hey, it's a bit different. Yeah, uh, mind blowing. Actually, it was it was it was amazing. Um, like I said, we're privy to to, to viewing these vehicles before. You know, at concept stage, so or sketch stage at, at sometimes. So um, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty mind boggling, and just to see where the brand was going, and um, and you know, it's here now on sale. Do you think it has an impact on people working in the brand when they see something that is obviously making a significant step? Is that something that revs up the troops? I think so, definitely. I think there's some um, there's a lot of pride and uh. uh a lot of hope to see what our company is building for the future. And, you know, Ionic 5 is one of those stepping stones towards that. And I think it gives a, uh, uh, it gives all our employees that, you know, that hope, that, uh, that next step to say, okay, wow, this is where we're going. This is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. It has a specific electric vehicle platform. Does that open up new opportunities? Because most electric vehicles have been, internal combustion engine designed cars that have been adapted that sure does so our ionic 5 is based on what we call our egmp platform which is short for electric global modular platform and what that means is that we have a now scalable platform uh, in terms of uh, dimensions so whether that could be a passenger car a sedan it could be an suv uh, it could be a two-door coupe, whatever it may be. And the advantages of that, David, are that since it's scalable and it's uh, purpose designed for an electric vehicle, we can push the wheels right out to each corner because we don't have an internal combustion engine designed under the front bonnet, say, for example. Um, we can reduce that area. We can open up the interior space. Uh, and with Ionic 5, what we've done uh, we've given it a completely flat floor on the inside, so you can walk through the front from left to right, um, and also increases the interior space dramatically. Ionic 5 is the size of, say, for example, as comparison, a Tucson in terms of length, but its width is uh, very similar to a Santa Fe, which is a large SUV in Australia. But more importantly, its wheelbase is longer than a Palisade at three metres long. It gives <laughs> you that Palisade really good big... interior space. Yeah, that sort of flat space in there, it sort of opens it up like old combi vans, as I remember. You know, you always, <laughs> most modern cars tend to have a rather large block in the middle with a gear stick in the middle of it that that really is a, a cocoons you in your spot, but perhaps uh, confines you there as well. Correct. And with Ionic 5, based on its bespoke EGMP platform, Obviously, there was no need for that transmission tunnel or exhaust tunnel, whatever it may be. So the floor is completely flat. The gear selectors move to the steering column. We have an adjustable center console in the middle there. So it's uh, what we call our living space theme interior. It's like a lounge. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the powertrains, you've got an uh, two-wheel drive and all-wheel drive. Talk to me about the two-wheel drive. Where and how does that work? So with the eGMP platform, like I said, one of the benefits um, adding to what I mentioned before is that um, we can place that electric motor wherever we need to. So as a two-wheel drive variant, the motor is actually based in the rear. So it's a rear-wheel drive-based platform, uh, which gives, I suppose, superior dynamic uh, handling and, and um, 
uh, suspension characteristics. So, yeah, the two-wheel drive is 160 kilowatts. It's a uh, rear-mounted motor um, with a single-speed reduction gear attached to it. 160 kilowatts is no slouch. No, it's uh, it's not too bad. Uh, 160 kilowatts, 350 newton meters, um, so quite decent power for every day. Now the all-wheel drive, how does that work? So that just adds a second motor on the front axle, so it adds a 70 kilowatt front motor, and the total combined power output for the uh, all-wheel drive is 225 kilowatts. And with a significant increase in torque to 605 newton meters. The total 225. I mean, that's Subaru STI, WRX STI. That's not an insignificant number. No, that's right. It's actually more than our i30N at, uh, I believe, 206 kilowatts at the moment. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty decent number there. You're calling it an, obviously an, an SUV, yet its looks moves away from that. It's almost hot hatch in its design funny you say that so it's one of those cars when you see it in a photo you're like oh it's it's a hatchback and then when you see it in person you're like oh wow this is not a hatchback this is this is definitely an suv it's pretty big uh yeah look i think the advantage of the egmp platform is because it's so efficient we don't have to design a conformist electric vehicle that's super aerodynamic, even though Ionic 5 is very aerodynamic. Um, we can design something a little bit more conventional, but also we can design something a little bit more futuristic like we have with the Ionic 5 at the same time. Um, and that's the benefit of that platform. It's great. It's very efficient. So like I said, scalable, and you can adapt to any kind of design you want there. So you've got the engine in the back. It brings back almost that different style of motoring we remember of VW Beetles and <laughs> it was different and you were proud of its differences, uh, you know, even Carmen gears and, and other things. Uh, it, it's changed the, the well, us old rev heads, uh, sorry, when I said us, I meant me, <laughs> but, uh, uh, old rev heads who, you know, thought about things in a different way, Renaults with engines in the back. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to think, like, it's you know, when you look at the vehicle, you would never think it's a, a rear-wheel drive, but not just rear-wheel drive, rear, rear motor rear-wheel drive uh, vehicle. It, it doesn't really look like it. And, again, that goes back to that flexibility of that platform where the motor can be mounted low uh, and it doesn't impede on that cargo area at all. I mean, the cargo area has got 527 litres of space above that motor, so it's pretty decent for the, for the size of the vehicle. So, yeah. It is quite interesting when you make that analogy compared to those old Renaults. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Chris, that's lovely, and I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. All good. Thank you. And that was Chris Salterpedis, who is the program manager for Hyundai Australia. The full interview, which covers a wide range of subjects, can be found on our website, drivenmedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia. With the growth of prestige SUVs in recent years, there's also been a surge in sport SUVs as well. And the Audi SQ7 is amongst the best of them. It's a beautiful car. Here's a luxury SUV that will seat five in comfort and seven occasionally, and is packed full of the latest safety and technology features from Audi. Inside, it's comfortable with electric heated sport seats, MMI Navigation Plus, touchscreen operation, and the Audi Virtual Cockpit. 
SQ7 is powered by a stunning 4-litre twin turbo V8 diesel engine that pumps out a 320kW and 900nm of torque through Audi's Quattro drivetrain and an 8-speed automatic. It's surprisingly economical as well. The family SUV will race from 0 to 100 in just under 5 seconds and tops out of control 250. It has a smooth ride and handling and effortless performance. The continual linear surge under acceleration is pure joy. The Audi SQ7 is priced at around 162300 plus usual costs. I'm Brianna Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. I was just asked to do an interview on ABC about dash cams and I went through the technology and the specifications and how it could be used both for the driver's benefit in insurance and perhaps even helping traffic engineers with the sort of data and information and images it can produce. But there's a whole aspect of how good is it and how easy is it, is it to use from the consumer's point of view. Now, I've been using a dash cam for a short period. A man who's been having one for quite some time is our good friend from gaycarboys.com, Alan Zervis. G'day, Alan. How are you, David? I'm thinking rather broadly about all the aspects of operating one of these things. The first thing is it does give you navigation. What sort of things might I be looking for in the navigation system that it might provide? Well, I think more broadly, generally, navigation needs to provide proper information that's clear. So giving you instructions about where to turn well and truly prior to you needing to turn so you're not doing it at the last minute, making sure you're in the right lane and so forth. Uh, and also perhaps even providing the next instruction after that. So if you have to turn left, that in the list, clearly on the screen is next turn is a right or straight ahead for 10 kilometres or whatever. So the dash cam will talk to you? Depends on what kind of dash cam you get. Dash cams that have built-in navigation, which is the one that you're talking about, or the type you're talking about, and then there are the ones that are pure cameras. It's just a display on the back and a camera on the front, and it's just to record your trip. Because the other thing they record is, well, they can record, is speed cameras and uh, stop-line cameras. How might they tell you that information? Most of them bring it up on the screen. It'll also give you a bong. I turn all of that nonsense off and I just have the display only. I don't even like cars that have that built-in bonging you every five minutes. But it gives you a, a warning well and truly in advance and then a countdown timer or a countdown uh, distance. So you can tell that where that camera is and what it is. There are two aspects to the bong, bonging, if you pardon the expression. One of them is a false reading, which can be in incredibly frustrating. The other is that if you're in a, a tight urban area, how often would you get a, a sound advice? And what does that ultimately mean to your perceptions? The first aspect of that is that most of these dash or all of these dash cams get the information from built-in maps. And it uses GPS location to tell it where you are. Now, it's only within a few hundred metres. So you could well be seeing something that's happening on an adjoining road. Hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's not always right because of that. So you might be in a 50 kilometre an hour area, but it might be showing you a 100 kilometre speed zone and a camera on the main highway. The other issue is that you may be in a 40k zone, but you're out of time. 
Have we got good enough systems that can take time into account at this stage? Very few cars that I've been in, even with built-in systems, have that time as part of their processing. So if you're going into, for example, a school zone and it's between 2.30 and 4 o'clock, it will tell you that it's a school zone 24 hours a day. And that's seven days a week. Clearly, there's no school at midnight. There's a lot of cameras and uh, different speed zones and so on throughout a tight urban area. Have you ever counted how many times the thing has bonged at you? I was driving from my place, uh, which isn't very far from the CBD, it's quite close by, driving through the CBD to get elsewhere. And then I had to make a few little trips within it, which is why I took the car. Normally, I would take public transport. And this thing bonged no less than 100 times. And so your response was? To turn the system off. Yeah. They're not that expensive, dash cams, are they? Well, it's funny you should mention that. We are giving away, uh, you and I, both websites are giving away a camera. So we've got two. And it's the new Navman entry-level camera for 169 bucks called the MyView 150 Safety. So it's good. It, it covers most things. The quality of the camera is excellent. It's got the same built-in warnings. The only thing it doesn't do is, which is the one you've got, will allow Bluetooth connections and, and make your phone hands-free. This won't do that, but it will do everything else. And it doesn't have navigation because we don't normally need navigation. How can people enter the competition? And our viewers and listeners can enter the competition by taking that name, the name of the other camera, and emailing gaycarboys at outlook.com or, David, what's your email address? Feedback at drivenmedia.com.au And they can enter on either site or both. They can't win two, though. They can't win two, no. You'll only win one, but it'll give you two chances. And, of course, you can enter as many times as you like. That has to be for people in Australia, of course. For people in Australia, and we've got it running till the end of this month, October. All right, Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Alan Service from GayCarboys.com talking about the practicalities of Dashcam. This is Overdrive across Australia. In a world that is seeing more SUVs and less true four-wheel drives, a new four-wheel drive builder is going against the trend. It's Ineos and their Grenadier 4x4, which is an odd vehicle in today's ever-softening market of four-wheel drives to SUVs. It harks back to the old-fashioned true four-wheel drive with modern technology. The idea was conceived from a perceived gap in the market by Ineos chairman Jim Ratcliffe, car enthusiast and experienced adventurer who in 2017 believed there was a demand for a stripped-back, utilitarian, hard-working 4x4 engineered for modern-day compliance and reliability. When you think of rugged, true four-wheel drives now, the list is getting smaller. However, the Grenadier 4x4 isn't the dream child of a hopeful designer. Ineos is a huge company, mainly in the petrochemical industry, so the backing pedigree is sound. Sales of the Grenadier will begin in July 2022. Australia gets a right-hand drive version right from the initial production phase. Prices in Australia are expected to start from around $84,000 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Let's talk a little bit of the more unusual, and who better to do that than our transport expert, Brian Smith. Gay Brian. 
Hey, David. What have you got about buses? It's about buses, David. I, one of my favourite topics. But but I want to start with a diversion away from that. Have you ever seen on, on old Western movies those little carts that ran along the rails? You know, a person would... Oh, yes, yes. ...sort of seesaw up and down a lever to move these things along the track. And... Um, and, and, you know, so this would be, you could move a little bit of stuff along a railway track without running an enormous locomotive. And, of course, in um, Australia, we, we have those, but we also had rail motors, which were kind of like a, a, a short train, maybe with an electric motor or a, or a petrol engine, and um, they would drive along the tracks. Well, there was an entire fleet of buses that ran on rails in New South Wales during the 50s. And even as far as the 1980s, the state government started to close rail lines. But, you know, through the 50s and 60s, they would run a small bus along the, uh, along the tracks. And in particular, they, they used to, in the old days when you got paid in cash, they would have a little bus, what they called pay buses, that ran on the rails that would deliver the pay to the different train stations and, uh, and employees along the way. So they had 13 of them. They were built in New South Wales. They looked fantastic. If, if this was a visual medium, it would be great to show you these. They were fantastic. And built by Waddington's and Commonwealth Engineering. They were four wheels. Of course, they had bogies rather than rubber wheels. And they had a Ford Mercury V8 in the engine compartment, petrol engine, and a four-speed gearbox. And so, you know, there's a little bit of passenger carrying capacity, but mostly they were there to carry the, the cash. And in fact... One of them in particular was um, was damaged and destroyed in a payroll robbery attempt at Yandera in 1941. And so they ran um, up until 1986, the last one which ran between Lithgow and Clyde. What a wonderful vision and image of, of these vintage-looking buses running around on the rails. And it doesn't appear that, that any of them have been... Um, uh, well, three, I think, might have been preserved in New South Wales. I'd, I'd love to see one, David. Now, Brian, you've done a lot of work in passenger travel on the whole of journey. Yeah. And that it's all very well to say a train trip only takes 20 minutes or whatever, but it, if you if it's difficult to get to the station and so on, the whole of journey, let alone adding if you have a disability, it's the whole of journey needs to be considered. The same has to be considered for freight. We have now this cumbersome thing of getting onto a train. Now, we're building an inland railway. I think we ought to have built a corridor. Now, if you're going to have railway lines, why not build little devices that you can drive a truck on and a truck powers and you go along the railway line? And at the other end, it can just drive off. The complications of signalling might be a challenge, David. It might. With, with vehicles that operate on the rail. Simply single track. It goes even further that if you build a corridor and, and then putting down the rail is the pain in the derriere, it's almost a case that if we had a considered a corridor that could potentially be running with devices that have a significant amount of electric power, remembering the trains are only diesel electrics, you could use that corridor more efficiently than necessarily taking on the old traditional thing of fixed rail. It's an interesting idea, David. You're right. We may as well make as much use of our investment in rail as possible. The modern technology, uh, you know, we can form a convoy. And in fact, with modern computing and that, and not only could they have, you know, detection of vehicles ahead of you so that if you're you know, likely to have an accident, but the, uh, the other point is scheduling. 
what they're talking about now is when they talked about platooning trucks across the highways, they, the real thing that they talked about was being able to schedule that. So you could book it in so that you joined 10 other trucks and went across on a convoy. Now, convoys have got their problems on a road, I understand that, and maybe we probably won't go that way. But you could on a railway corridor, you could platoon very comfortably. It's just that they would be individually powered, like a truck, which may sit on a, a on a bogey structure that drives the steel wheels. I guess that's the question of where they're going. If they're all going to the same place, you might as well make it a train, I suppose. But certainly on the road, one of the advantages of platooning is air resistance. So, so the vehicle at the front is kind of pushing its way through the air, but but the vehicles that are behind, if they're very close behind. Uh, get a lot of benefits, a lot of uh, reduced sort of uh, energy consumption uh, by, um, I guess, basically, um, you know, wind sucking. And that's Brian Smith, transport planner, who uh, has a great passion for public transport, but one with an understanding that you have to make it work. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Service, Chris Salter-Peters, Brian Smith, Rob and Brianna Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.